This program is made possible by the members and donors of the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Progressive, Jim Hightower, The Majority Report, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Matt Filipovich Show, The Green News Report, The Onion Radio News, Counterspin, Mumi Abu-Jamal, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, and comedian Lee Camp with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Let me show you the income inequality so you get a sense of what we're talking about here when it comes to Occupy Wall Street and so many people in this country, the 99% of us that are frustrated. So last quarter, we're told that uh, things went really well. The GDP grew by 2.5%. Everybody was happy. The stock market has started to go up. Uh, What they didn't tell you is that real disposable personal income fell by 1.7%. So the economy is, quote-unquote, getting better, right? But... The reality is we're not getting any better. So the money's going somewhere. I'm going to show you where it's going in a second. But it ain't going to us. Our income is going down. Stock market must be thrilled, but it's not going to us. In fact, you know, from Think Progress, there's this excellent chart that we got. It says if the US land were divided like US wealth, here's who how much of it would be owned in terms of uh, of the land mass, right? would own that much, which is a gigantic amount. 9% would own the rest. And then you say, hey, at least we get Florida and Texas. (laughs) The 90%, the rest of us, right? But as you look at that, it gives you at least some visual sense of how much of the wealth the top 1% and the top 10% have. It is gigantic. So when you look at uh, how things have gone over the last 30 years, and this is what we've been talking about all the time on this show, because this goes to show you how they whittled away at us, right? And how they redistributed the money to the top. Well, a new study out that shows from the House Budget Committee, um, and uh, I'm sorry, it's from the Half and Ten Campaign's new report, Restoring Shared Prosperity. From 1973 to 2009, a typical worker uh, had his wages go up by a dollar twenty-three per hour. Okay, over thirty-six years, that is an average of eight point four percent. So over thirty-six years, your hourly wage goes up a little over a buck, eight percent. Now, yesterday we showed you a separate report that's a slightly different time range, but about the same ballpark, seventy-nine to two thousand and seven, for the top one percent. How much did their income go up? So your income went up by about a buck an hour. Their income went up 275%. You think that was just a coincidence? You think that that's normal? That doesn't happen in every 30-year time period. You should see from, you know, 1950 to 1980. It's not the case at all. In fact, the bottom 20% had their share of income actually go up in that time period. To us now, it seems like that's... How could that have possibly happened? Well, because we had a fairer tax code. And, we, and it was better distributed. Right now, the tax code has the richest people, the millionaires, paying less than we do. How does that make any sense? The richest hedge fund and private equity guys in the country, the guys on Wall Street, are paying 15% on capital gains, dividends, and earned interest, while you're paying a much higher rate. So they're taking from the middle class and giving to the rich, and then it's not surprising that you wind up getting an 8% increase over 36 years, and they wind up getting a 275% increase in less than 30 years. Now, when you ask the rich, by the way, and here's something that's interesting. Do you agree with Warren Buffett 
that your taxes should be raised if you're above a million dollars. And these are all people who have income above a million dollars. You'd think, well, they're probably going to say no, right? I mean, it's their income. <laughs> Wrong again, Bob. They say yes. 68% of millionaires saying, yeah, you should raise our taxes. When they ask them why, they have a number of reasons. These are just quotes from some of the people that they polled. And this is the Spectrum group that did this poll. And they're like, honestly, we have the money. One guy says, I don't really know what else to spend it on. I think that if you took more from me on taxes, I wouldn't decrease my spending at all. It's just you'd be taking a little bit more from my savings. But he's like, another guy says, hey, you know what? Uh, look, obviously for my own self-interest, I don't want to be taxed more. But on the other hand, I really think the country needs it. So I think the best thing to do is for, to increase my taxes so that the gov federal government and the country could be in better shape so that it works for all of us. So who's stopping it, right? Who, is, who are the guys who are saying, hey, you know what? I don't care what a majority of the millionaires think. I don't care what a majority of the country thinks. And by the way, over 80% of the country says we should tax millionaires more, right? But now they're getting taxed less than us. It's insanity. Anyway, so how many, uh, so who's stopping all of this? Over 80% of the country, over 68% of millionaires? Well, it's the few, that 32% of millionaires and billionaires who say, oh no. No, I love my money. And I, I'm so greedy that I'm going to take some of my money and I'm going to spend it on politicians. Because that's 68% who are willing to get taxed more. They don't go and contribute to a senator saying, hey, please, can you tax me more? They just say, hey, if you do it, I get it. And in fact, I'm in favor of it, right? But they don't actively go and do legalized bribery of our politicians. But the super greedy at the top, they go, well, like the Koch brothers. They've got $44 billion, but it's not enough for them. So they go buy every politician they can see. On the Energy Committee, because it affects them the most because they're in the oil business, they bought 27 of the 31 people in that committee in the House. You think the guys who want higher taxes going and paying the guys on the committee, hey, please raise my taxes? No. <laughs> the problem isn't even the greed of those few uh, millionaires and billionaires we're talking about. The problem is that the system allows them to do legalized bribery. I mean, look, it, I'm not just saying this because we started this uh, movement and, and this pack, but it's true. The reason we started the pack was because we, we see news like this every single day. Look, Wolfpack is, is saying we've got to stop this at the source. If you allow politicians to take money and unlimited money from corporations and from uh, rich donors, you're never going to be able to stop this. A couple of guys like the Koch brothers are going to come and they're gonna, for the next election, they're raising over $200 million. Carl Rove's group is raising $240 million. All they got to do is grab 10, 20, 100 of the richest and greediest guys in the country and then the rest of us don't matter at all. We don't have a democracy. Those guys can go and, and, and they give a tremendous amount of money to Mitt Romney, to Rick Perry, and to Barack Obama, and then they say, you will do our bidding. They don't give a damn about us and our priorities. Sometimes with rats instead of nursery rhymes with hunger 
and your other children by her side and wonder if you'll share your bed with something else that must be fed for fear and I beside you or it may this Occupy Wall Street movement isn't going away, and it's got the corporate establishment and their apologists freaked out. But Pat Robertson telling all good Christians not to join the protest isn't going to put a damper on them. Neither is Fox News by making fun of them, or Herman Cain by telling everyone to go get a job. People in mass numbers continue to gather in city after city, large and small. This weekend, there'll be protests not only in New York, but in places as tiny as Salida, Colorado and people are finally willing to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience. In Tucson, more than 350 people have been arrested. In Chicago, more than 300. This movement has real staying power, and the reason it has staying power is because people understand in their gut and in their wallet that they've been ripped off. They know the top 1% runs the show and hogs the wealth and income. It's this lack of fairness, this lack of justice, this lack of empowerment that fuels the indignation of Occupy Wall Street. We don't have representative democracy in America. We have unrepresentative democracy here, and that's putting it nicely. Because what we really have is an oligarchy and a kleptocracy. And at some point, people wake up and yell, Stop thief! I believe we've reached that point right now. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. The resilient Occupy Wall Street group in New York City certainly occupies the minds of the banksters who are the target of this protest against economic injustice, but the group doesn't actually occupy Wall Street. Instead, they're in nearby Zuccotti Park, and therein lies the story. Ironically, this people's movement against corporate power finds itself based in a corporate-owned park. It's named for John Zuccotti, who is not some noted civic leader or public official, but the chairman of Brookfield Office Properties, a big corporate developer. In 2006, this outfit erected a 54-story office tower across the street from what was then an open space for the public, called Liberty Plaza. In an insider deal between corporate and government officials, Brookfield was given a zoning variance by the city to build a taller structure than the building code allowed. Plus, it was given possession of Liberty Plaza. To mark its corporate property, Brookfield promptly plastered its chairman's name on the space. While Zuccotti Park technically must be kept open to the public, it is maintained by the corporation and, most importantly, governed by rules the corporation unilaterally sets. No surprise, then, that after only three weeks of the occupation, Brookfield abruptly announced a new set of rules to prohibit camping, 
tents, sleeping bags, laying on the ground, and otherwise sustaining an assembly of citizens exercising their constitutional rights. This is Jim Hightower saying, thanks to a loud public outcry, however, this crude corporate attempt to oust Occupy failed, at least for the time being. But Zuccotti is still a corporate park, meaning an ugly crackdown on people peacefully protesting for democracy in America remains a threat. Meanwhile, Occupy Wall Street has put its own non-corporate brand on the space, calling it Liberty Square. Uh, Daily News reports that the NYPD seems to have crossed a line in recent days as the park has taken on a darker tone with unsteady and unstable types suddenly seeming to emerge from the woodwork. This is down at Sagati Park. Two different drunks I spoke with last week told me they'd be encouraged to, quote, take it to Zuccotti by officers who'd found them drinking in other parks, and members of the Community Affairs Working Group related similar stories they've heard while talking with intoxicated or aggressive new arrivals. Quote, he's got the right to express himself, you've got a right to express yourself. I heard three cops repeat in recent days using nearly identical language when asked to intervene with troublemakers in, inside the park, including a clearly disturbed man screaming and singing wildly at 3 a.m. for the second straight night. So in other words, part of their ongoing plan to make it difficult for people to stay in the park is to take people who may have, uh, who are clearly intoxicated, who may have psychological issues, and steer them toward Zuccotti. There needs to be an internal investigation by the police department to find out if these allegations are true. Because if so, it's unbelievable. And next thing we'll hear are the right-wingers who are going to be reporting on how many drunks there are in Zuccotti Park and how the members of Zuccotti Park cannot police themselves but won't let police in to do any policing. That's the next story we're going to hear. We all need a pantomime to remind us what is real. Oh my, I know what it means. Cause I'm Today, the entire city of Oakland, California, was subject to what they call a general strike. 
According to the suggested chant list from the Occupy Oakland folks, the idea is strike, occupy, shut it down. Oakland is the people's town. Also, every hour, every day, the occupation is here to stay. You get the basic idea. What you're looking at right now is live footage, live footage of the general strike in Oakland tonight. Now, the idea of a strike is is usually pretty narrow, right? It's a pretty narrowly targeted idea. It's the people who work at a specific place stopping working there in order to get that place to treat them better as employees. That's the idea of a strike. The idea of a general strike is not a targeted action against any one place of business, against any one employer. It's general. It is less about raising a beef with one particular target of the strike than it is about establishing that the people striking are all on the same side together. Oakland has had a general strike before. It was 1946, right after the end of World War II. There was a a sort of not huge scale labor dispute in Oakland. Retail store clerks went on strike against some downtown department stores because they wanted better pay and better conditions. There were picket lines. uh, There were some heated confrontations. There were people arrested. But it was proceeding pretty much as you would expect out of your average labor strike. Until it became not just a dispute between those stores and the people who worked for those stores, but rather a dispute in which the police intervened forcibly on the side of the stores against the people who were striking, against the employees. They beat us all out of the alleys, uh, pushed us with those damn billy clubs. I was black and blue here for months. The trucks followed right behind them, went on in and unloaded. Then they went back to get more. It wasn't bringing in strike breakers necessarily that started the general strike. You know, I thought about that a lot since that. We'd seen strike breakers. But the thing was, using the police force that we were paying taxes for to beat us off our own streets. The police don't work for the stores any more than they work for the striking workers, right? Police aren't supposed to take a side in a labor dispute. They're just supposed to enforce the law. But that morning in December 1946, when people saw police breaking the strike up, siding against the workers and bringing in the strike breakers, the general strike just spontaneously happened. Bus drivers saw what was happening. They parked their buses, got out of them, and left them sitting there. People working at other businesses just walked away from their jobs. It was a spontaneous general strike, a spontaneous taking sides with those store employees who sort of otherwise had been doing their own thing. The general strike in Oakland in the 40s was not a big organized union-led thing, actually. It, it happened spontaneously. It went on for two and a half days. Maybe this is apocryphal, but the way they tell the story of it now in Oakland is that in the 1946 strike, every business in the city was shut down for two days and a bit. The only businesses that were allowed to stay open during the strike were food stores and pharmacies, so people could get their medicine, And also bars, but bars with an asterisk. Bars would be allowed to stay open during the strike, the general strike in 1946. This may be apocryphal, but this is what they say. Only if they agreed to two conditions. One, they could only serve beer and not hard liquor. And two, they had to agree to put their jukeboxes out on the sidewalk so all the general strikers could enjoy the music. This year, Occupy Oakland started as one of the dozens, if not hundreds, of Occupy encampments that have sprung up all over the country to stand up for the 99 percent, right? Stand up for the 99 percent of Americans who are underserved by our economy and by our political system, which has been captured by the 1 percent. But on October 25th of this year, the actions of the Oakland police again helped turn what had been a sort of small, sort of isolated movement, at least comparatively speaking, into a much, much larger movement, 
Before the Oakland police made the bad decision to wage essentially a shock and awe campaign of militarized force against that little protest in downtown Oakland, before that, this was about the size of that protest, a few dozen tents and a few hundred people in Oakland. Since the actions of the Oakland police on October 25th, the protests have not only come back, look, they are now much larger, much, much larger than they were before. Even San Francisco across the bay, a very progressive city in its own right, and a much bigger one, does not have as much support, as many people, as many energy now, as Occupy Oakland does. And with this renewed energy, which again comes in part thanks to police making a very bad decision about how to treat this on October 25th, Occupy Oakland today decided to do what Oakland does. They called for a general strike across the entire city. Today, thousands of Oakland residents took to the streets for what were reportedly, reportedly by local press, calling these things the largest demonstration in the East Bay since the days of the Vietnam War. And in the East Bay, that's where Berkeley is. They know something about demonstrations against the Vietnam War. The Occupy Oakland demonstrators, along with hundreds of teachers and students and nurses, marched through downtown Oakland today, gathering at the city's biggest banks in a show of force that is set to culminate tonight at the Port of Oakland. The Port of Oakland, of course, the fifth biggest port in the country, one of the major conduits of imports from China into our country. The Oakland police remained mostly on the sidelines today. A number of local businesses, including some of those banks, just closed their doors today. Some city and port workers were sent home early today. Oakland School District reported that 18% of the city's teach for, teacher force joined the strike today. But again, this is not a labor strike. This is not a specific strike against a specific organization or a specific business. This is a general strike, which is a rare thing. And it means that it is not about taking on any one business to try to get them to change. In fact, a lot of businesses in Oakland, not just the Grand Lake Theater, support the idea of standing up for the 99%. For example, the men's warehouse clothing stores put up these signs today. We stand with the 99% closed Wednesday, November 2nd. While some businesses in Oakland closed altogether today, some stayed open but decided to go cash only so that the big banks and credit card companies would not be taking their pound of flesh from those local businesses today. But again, this is general, right? There is not a specific target. There's not a specific agenda. This is about saying the system shouldn't only work for the rich, period. Would you choose to go back working 12 hours a day? Would you choose to toil more and a pittance be paid? Would you stand with the union against the new right? Or do you think on your own you can withstand their might? The answer is written in our history. If it weren't for the union, where would we be? It's our union, our union that defends our rights. But our union's as strong as our will is to fight. For the union is you, and the union is me. So stand up and stand by our union. One of the many great things about the Occupy Wall Street movement is that it's adding steam to the effort to amend the Constitution, to declare once and for all that corporations aren't persons and shall not use their treasuries to influence which candidate is elected and which is defeated. On November 1st, the city of Boulder became the second in the nation after Madison to pass a measure calling for such an amendment. It passed by a whopping three-to-one margin. Next week, Missoula, Montana is taking up a similar measure. Also on Tuesday, eight U.S. Senators formally introduced a constitutional amendment that doesn't quite go far enough on this issue, but grants Congress and the states the right to regulate contributions and expenditures. 
Last year, Representatives Donna Edwards and John Conyers introduced a constitutional amendment on the House floor to directly overturn Citizens United. These congressional efforts are a step forward, as are the efforts at the city and county level across the country. And I'm hoping that the Occupy Wall Street movement will push even harder on this issue, because if we don't amend the Constitution and deny corporate personhood, the 1% will rule the country as never before. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as five a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. There was a major action yesterday at Occupy Oakland. Uh, there was an estimated 20,000 protesters out uh, yesterday. Uh, a lot of businesses shut down a lot by choice, like Men's Warehouse uh, shut down. They actually put a sign in the window saying that we support the 99%, uh, and so we're closed for the day. A lot of banks were shut down uh, by, by, uh, by just the sheer number of people blocking them. Uh, but most impressively, most impressively, uh, the port of Oakland was shut down by protesters. The actual port was not was shut down, uh, which is huge. Uh, that is gigantic. Um, it was it was a gigantically successful day. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, there reportedly was a a small group of protesters uh, who had to go and ruin it. Uh, who started spraying graffiti and breaking windows uh, and burned garbage. And of course, even though that's a very small group of protesters, and of course uh, they, they they you know they shut down the port of Oakland. The whole other than a few people, it was a very successful, peaceful protest. Of course, the violence is what gets all the coverage. So to those protesters, way to go, you friggin' jerks! Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for doing that. That's really wonderful. On a day that there was that there, that, that we had this amazing. Nonviolent, peaceful protest where the very port of Oakland was shut down, was no longer doing business, where banks were shut down. You friggin' clowns go and give the right wing corporate media footage of exactly, exactly what they wanted. You gave them precisely what they wanted footage of protesters burning things. Thanks a friggin' lot, guys. Uh, man, speaking of speaking of right wing media, speaking of uh, you know the right wing media that that we that we're that we're up against, uh, Rupert Murdoch's New York Post, <laughs> the New York Post this morning is hysterical. Frankly, uh, today's cover today's cover shows uh, shows some tents, uh, you know, at, at the at, at Zuccotti Park uh, at uh, Freedom Plaza. Uh, well, I'm not going to call it Zuccotti, but the New York Post's typical in the, in the New York, <laughs> their headline in the Post typical reserved classy and understated style the headline on the cover today reads in big bold letters 
enough with an exclamation mark and the subtitle says mr mayor it is time to reclaim zuccotti park and new york city's dignity do you hear that i'm not i'm not joking reclaim new york city's dignity oh dear mr mayor oh dear our dignity has been sullied it has been sullied and spat upon by these 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 people expressing their first amendment rights our dignity mr mayor inside the headline of the editorial about it reads again in, in typical typical post fashion time to throw the bums out that's right time to throw the bums out because the protesters the protesters you see are bums they're bums. They are beneath us. They're beneath everybody. They are just bums. You know who I think are bums? You know who I think are bums? I think bums are, are people in media organizations that hack people's phones. That's who I think are bums. I think media organizations that hack the phones of kidnapped children and murder victims are friggin' bums. Where is the dignity, New York Post? Where is the dignity in phone hacking? Answer me that. Another news. Another. Another news. This. Uh, this morning, uh, Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker made a trip down to my former home of Chicago, Illinois, and I am proud to say, just like most of the places he goes in Wisconsin, uh, Scotty. Scotty was greeted by protesters in Chicago, which was awesome. Apparently, about fifty or so protesters. A lot of them reportedly from uh, the Occupy Chicago movement disrupted Scott Walker's speech, which is awesome. They were chanting, "What's discussed?" Union busting. Uh, they were chanting, "We are the 99 percent." Uh, so great job. Uh, after they were kicked out uh, of the speech, uh, Micah Utrecht. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm probably saying his name wrong. Uh, but Micah from In These Times uh, magazine uh, was there, and he tweeted that Scott Walker uh, gave out not one, not two, but three. He gave out three shoutouts to Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel on Rom's austerity programs. He praised Rom for sticking it to the common man, sticking it to the unions. So way to go, Rom. Way to go, Mr. Mayor Rahm Emanuel. Nice to know that you have a friend and an ally in Republican governor from Wisconsin, Scott Walker. And speaking of, speaking of the 1%, speaking of the 1% that Scott Walker serves, that, that Rahm Emanuel serves, there was a new report, uh, by a group called Citizens for Tax Justice. Uh, and they looked at 280 companies that are part of, uh, the Fortune 500, the 500 most successful publicly traded companies. And they found, they found that of of uh, in the last three years of those 280 corporations, <coughs> excuse me, that of those 280 corporations, 78 of them, 78 of those 280 corporations, at least one year, at least one year in the last three, paid zero or or less than zero in federal income tax. That's right, zero or less than zero. Some, of course, less than zero meaning a lot of them got money back after uh, massive tax loopholes. But 78 of them, 78, that is more than one out of four of them. And just so you know, just so you know, in the years that those corporations paid nothing or, again, less than nothing in income tax, those companies, those corporations made 
$156 billion in pre-tax profits. That's right, $156 billion. So it's not like these companies were hurting in any way, shape, or form. It's not like they weren't making any money. They made $156 billion in pre-tax profits, which would amount to about $55 billion in revenue that should have been going to the American people in taxes. $55 billion should have been, been, been paid in taxes. And instead of that $55 billion coming in, instead of it coming into the American tax coffers, instead, we gave out, we paid out tw- over $21 billion in refunds and handouts to these Fortune 500 corporations. We gave out 21, over $21 billion to these companies that made $156 billion in profits. They also found, that was, that was just the 78, they also found that 30 of those corporations, 30 of them paid zero, or again, less than zero, for not just one of the years, but for the entire last three years. The entire last three. But really, though, really, though, Rupert Murdoch, uh, New York Post, what are these bums? What are these bums, these Occupy bum protesters, these scumbags? What are they complaining about, Rupert Murdoch, huh? What are they complaining about, New York Post? They have nothing to complain about, right? They have nothing to complain about, these these bums, these scum. They have nothing to, to, to be upset about. It makes, it makes, because it makes much more sense. It makes much more sense that corporations making billions and billions and billions and billions in profits pay nothing in taxes. It, it, it makes sense that they, they in fact get billions in refunds instead, instead of those corporations paying taxes. Instead, you know what we should do? We should cut social security. We should cut Medicare. We should cut Medicaid. And hell, while we're at it, let's do like Scott Walker and Rahm Emanuel do. Let's, let's Let's cut salaries for teachers. Let's cut teachers all together. Let's cut firefighters. Let's cut policemen. Let's let, let our bridges and roads crumble and disintegrate into the ground. I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, you will not be reading about this tax report in Rupert Murdoch's New York Post. How's that for friggin' dignified? of Environmental Protection. The State Departments of Environmental Protection. Make excuses for the gas and oil companies. Make excuses for the gas and oil Finally, at the Occupy Wall Street protests in New York City, it's literally power of the people. Police have confiscated the portable generators the protesters used at the encampment to provide electricity, so the protesters are now using bicycle generators for power. Cool. The Occupy Wall Street protesters also held a special day of climate justice, protesting corporate greed and political influence, and the connection to environmental destruction, holding a day-long teach-in on subjects like fracking, mountaintop removal, deep water drilling, and climate change, pointing out that the big banks that crashed the economy also finance extreme energy projects. They also suggest occupying your junk mail. These offers are from the same financial institutions that ruined our economy by speculating on the housing market. This isn't junk mail. This is an opportunity for a dialogue. 
The Occupy protest movement says use those postage paid envelopes that come in your junk mail and send them back, including all the junk mail you get, along with a note to tell the banks and credit card companies what you really think. This one says, hello, big bank clerk. Please join the union. I love those guys, and I love that bicycle generator. I gave a letter to the postman. He put it in his sack. Bright and early next morning. He brought my letter back. She wrote upon it. Return the sender. Address unknown. No such number. No such song. A giant protest puppet kills dozens of peace drummers. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. A 30-foot-tall puppet broke loose during a local demonstration today, killing an estimated 43 conga players and injuring scores of others. According to fellow marcher Emily Moon, the puppet's handlers, in their haste to get their message across, lost control of the towering marionette. It just started hand-clapping people into bloody pulps. It just it wouldn't stop. Alert police quickly set the papier-mâché monstrosity on fire and watched from a safe distance as it mindlessly danced and burned. Doyle Redland for the Onion. I want to announce a partnership that we've taken on here. Uh, it's a campaign to find out who the top 1% are and what they're doing to our economy. It's put together by Brave New Foundation, and it's fascinating. Uh, you can find out more about it at whoarethe1percent.com. But more important than that, uh, we want you to participate. So uh, here's basically the criteria we're looking for. You have to know that the, the person you're nominating, and you literally name names, is definitely in the top 1% and is doing something that hurts the rest of the 99%. We're not interested in people who are in the top 1% on, and aren't hurting anybody. There's nothing wrong with that at all. It's God bless. It's a free country. In fact, it's great if you're in the top 1% and you help folks, right? But we're looking for the people like the Koch brothers who uh, are doing damage by, for example, buying politicians so they could do deregulation, so they could do pollution in your neighborhood, and then that winds up hurting other people and they don't pay the cost. As an example, right? And Brave New Foundation wants to put together the top 30 of those with your help. And the people participating in this uh, partnership are Alternate, Campaign for America's Future, Care2, Center for Media and Democracy, Free Speech TV, Michael Moore, Politics USA, The Nation, The Young Turks, Tom Hartman, and Truthout. So find out or help us find out who the top 1% and the top 30 of those guys who are doing the greatest harm to our economy, to our politics, to our democracy. Uh, this is one way that, uh, that we wind up uh, you know, telling and educating the audience about uh, who are the bad guys and, and just you know, letting people know. And maybe they're proud. Maybe they don't think they're bad guys at all. Uh, I, my guess is they probably sleep pretty well going, oh, yeah, I mean, you should pay for my pollution and you should pay for my less uh, lower taxes. They got their own reasoning for it. Great. Well, you know, let's find out who they are and then have that discussion. 
from Occupy Wall Street to Occupy Oakland, economic inequality is still in the news. And on public television? Well, PBS's flagship newscast dedicated a segment on October 26th to a guest who believes inequality is a good thing. That guest was New York University Law School professor Richard Epstein, who presented a John Stossel-esque view of the economy. Inequality creates incentives for everyone to do better. Raising taxes on the wealthy would be a disaster. Businesses are overburdened with regulation. When he was asked if the top 1% has too much power over our politics, Epstein explained that they ought to. Quote, the last thing you would want to do in any kind of sensible society is to have a set of rules in which one man, one vote dictates over every issue. Close quote. And for good measure, the interview closed with Epstein saying he was fond of a famous Abraham Lincoln quote, you do not make the poor rich by making the rich poor, which is something that Abraham Lincoln never said. The NewsHour posted a correction on its website, and a few days later, correspondent Paul Solman defended the segment after what he called an avalanche of criticism from fair activists. Solman cited all the great work he thinks he's done on inequality over the years. But the core question here remains, is PBS, which is supposed to feature views that aren't heard elsewhere, really living up to its mission by presenting the views of the 1%? We thought they were being heard loud and clear. News that NPR stopped distributing a show about opera when it learned that the show's host was taking part in Occupy protests in Washington, D.C., left many people wondering just what is considered a controversial activity for a media worker to take part in. How extreme a position do they have to take to set off official alarms? You might ask Caitlin Curran, a freelance web producer for The Takeaway, a talk show co-produced by New York station WNYC and Public Radio International. Curran went to an Occupy Wall Street protest with her boyfriend and briefly held up a sign. WNYC's response? They fired her. A spokesperson said Curran's participation in the protest violated journalistic standards and, quote, more specifically, WNYC's editorial guidelines, which require that editorial employees be free of any conflict that might compromise the work of the show overall, close quote. Just how her participation presented a conflict or compromised the show was not elaborated. Perhaps it was the controversial nature of the views she expressed? Current sign read as follows, quote, It's wrong to create a mortgage-backed security filled with loans you know are going to fail so that you can sell it to a client who isn't aware that you sabotaged it by intentionally picking the misleadingly rated loans most likely to be defaulted upon, close quote. So that explains it. I mean, if you found out that the part-time web producer of a public radio show that bills itself as inviting listeners to be part of the American conversation expressed such a view, you'd want them fired immediately too, right? And in the naked light I saw 10,000 people, maybe more People talking without speaking What do they want? 
With a few exceptions, major corporate outlets, networks, national newspapers and the like have treated the month-long protests such as Occupy Wall Street as something like a UFO, odd, alien and inscrutable. From microphones nationwide come questions, what do they want? What are their demands or why are they doing this? By so doing, they have spread more confusion than information and performed a serious disservice to their listeners, viewers, and readers. They've become purveyors of misinformation and are, at the very least, disingenuous. For the occupation movement could not be more clear about their goals and objectives. Indeed, within days of the demonstration, they published a four-page, full-color newspaper called the Occupied Wall Street Journal with a statement on page three announcing exactly what brought them together and why. It's titled Declaration of the Occupation, which in language and tone rings with similarities to the Declaration of Independence. It speaks of solidarity with others and seeks an end to the mass injustice being faced by millions of Americans and others who, quote, feel wronged by the corporate forces of the world, unquote. In a nutshell, they speak out against corporate greed, illegal foreclosures, bailouts for Wall Street, discrimination, exorbitant student loans, political corruption, environmental degradation, the wars abroad, and the corporate control of the media, which, quote, keeps people misinformed and fearful, unquote. Huh. There it is. It ain't rocket science. It couldn't be clearer. It's given away freely. If media couldn't take the time to travel downtown to pick up a copy, they could see it on their computer at OccupyWallStreet.org. Seriously. Now, I don't have computer access. It's not only not allowed on death row, it isn't in Pennsylvania prisons, period. Yet a fellow mailed me a copy of the Occupied Wall Street Journal, and I read it. Why couldn't reporters from major media outlets report this? Unless they wanted to keep people misinformed. From death row, this is Mumia Abu Jamal. Occupy Oakland uh, is uh, getting notoriety for a lot of different reasons. Uh, of course, there was a police attack and the tear gas that they fired at uh, people, uh, including an Iraq veteran who wound up having a fractured skull and was in the hospital. Uh, they fired rubber bullets. They uh, fired bean bags. And it seemed like it was a little out of the blue initially. And then uh, there was the general strike that was called and l last week and then there was the gigantic uh protest march in oakland that shut down the port as part of that general strike uh we've told you about that on the show we were there on the ground we videotaped the crowds uh some press reports were comically saying the crowd was between three and ten thousand that crowd was at least fifty thousand people it was miles and miles of people it, it, i was literally have never been in a bigger crowd of my life and that includes football games that have had 40, 50, 60,000 people at them. So uh, Occupy Oakland obviously is gaining a lot of momentum. 
And uh, after that day uh, where there was the general strike, uh, and by the way, afterwards, and that was all peaceful, 100% peaceful, but afterwards, some anarchists in Oakland, which are greatly opposed by uh, a great majority of the Occupy Oakland movement, uh, went into a building, and then they wound up lighting, lighting some fires outside, and the cops came in and cleaned them out. That's understandable. But then the cops come in the next day, and Scott Campbell is a guy who's participating in Occupy Oakland, and he's taping them. Now, we're going to show you the tape, and you're going to see in the beginning here, or you're going to hear, Scott Campbell saying, is this okay? Because the cops had told him to move back a certain amount of space, and he had, and you'll see it on the tape. And then there's a different guy who's antagonizing the cops a little bit, you'll hear him as well, and at the end, something shocking happens. Watch. Is this okay? Is this okay? They shot him. Uh, they shot him with a rubber bullet. Thank God it wasn't a, uh, you know, a live bullet, I guess. But they shot him, and, and that's Scott Campbell, and he has told his story now and just released this video, and uh, and it definitely did damage. And as you saw on the tape, no provocation. And he wasn't the guy saying, "Whoa, I dare you do it," etc. He was the guy saying, "Okay, I'm backing away. Is this okay? Have I gotten to a, a right enough space?" And they just, one of the cops just flat out shot him. Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, I guess it's Oakland. But <laughs> look, I was in that crowd. I talked to a lot of people, right, the day before that shooting happened. And there is great antagonism towards the cops. And to the point, I have to be honest with you, where it made me uncomfortable. Some of the organizers are like, look, we're not like the other Occupy movements. We're not interested in cooperating with the cops. We think the cops are the bad guys. And I was like, whoa, really? Because that is definitely not what I've heard at Occupy Wall Street in Zuccotti Park. In Cleveland, the cops worked together with the Occupy movement to defeat uh, the bill that was proposed by the Republicans. That just happened yesterday, right? And the cops realized, oh my God, these Occupy guys can help us with our uh, collective bargaining. So there's been great cooperation in other places. In Albany, the cops refused to carry out, an, carry out an order by the mayor and the governor to clear out Occupy Albany. They're like, they're not breaking any laws and we're not gonna listen to you. But in Oakland, there's definitely antagonism. But when I saw that video, I began to understand why the guys that Occupy Oakland are so antagonistic toward the cops, because stuff like this happens. Now look, maybe it's a vicious cycle and it feeds on top of one another and the cops feel, hey, they're so antagonistic towards us, and hence we're gonna lash out, but you can't. You're the cops, you're supposed to protect the peace. You're supposed to be the good guys. You're supposed to protect the citizens. You can't just randomly shoot them because you don't like them. So obviously, it's a terrible outrage and it doesn't make that relationship in Oakland any better. And you can see how the authorities in Oakland are making the situation much worse and I hope it doesn't lead to greater conflict but if it does it's not just one side causing the violence clearly you see there the cops are the ones that started it in that case Everybody knows.
It sounds like um, Sebegi was hit with the police baton by perhaps several. Did you see any of that sort of activities with the police actually chasing people or people who were walking away from the scene? I couldn't see them chasing people. I did see people struck with batons. Um, the police massed in a line across Broadway, which was just to the north of where this was occurring. And they moved forward in a line using their batons like this in a kind of trudging motion and anyone who was in the way was struck by the baton and some of the people didn't want to give ground they were hit by batons I saw one person fall to the ground and be carried away um, and then the police that would then get to a certain point stop then move forward again uh, it took them about two sort of movements like that to reclaim the area the immediate area um, but from what I understand Kayvon was injured further west from this he was walking away from all the violence he wasn't stood trying to prevent police from approaching he said he was walking away uh, along for, along 14th street and he came into an isolated group of officers when he suffered his injuries which is so ironic because you were just pointing out a minute ago that um off air that the iraq and afghan war veterans have been sort of at the front of the march in part because they're a little bit braver and, and perhaps reassuring others that this is going to be peaceful that's correct on the march to the port of oakland which was a very well organized uh, protest. There must have been thousands, up to 10,000 different estimates, uh, estimate different numbers. But we walked from uh, the plaza, the Frank H. Ogoa Plaza, where the Occupy Oakland protest is based, and uh, headed down to the port, which is, I mean, in total, it was about a three mile walk. And Iraq veterans were at the front of the march, and they were very keen to keep the Iraq veterans in front of the sort of bulk of protesters. And uh, they were used as a sort of, like you're, you're right, as a kind of calming presence. Mm. And also, these people have been to war, they're not intimidated, um, but also they won't overreact and, you know, throw things, stuff like that. What's been the mood since the reporting has gotten out that yet another Iraq war veteran is facing serious injuries at the hands of U.S. police? I think it's disbelief. I think the first time people were very emotional to hear of Scott Olson's injuries, especially when video came out which shown, mm. shew him, uh, shown him not being a provocateur in any way. Um, he was just stood calmly. And uh, since then, I've spoken to people from the Iraq Veterans Against the War movement who, the feeling has been very much, I can't believe they've done it again. Mm. Um, Kayvan, from speaking to him, and uh, I believe him, he sounds a very honest guy he sounded very hurt but he said he was peaceful he had his arms folded he was trying to talk to officers when someone came forward and started hitting him with a baton um, it's just disbelief and also disgust that this can have happened again Moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. 
We claim to live in a land of free speech. We cherish that right. We love it and cling to it like Pastor Fred Phelps to his secret stash of gay porn. We rub it in the face of other countries. Look at us, you motherfucking asswipes. We have free speech. We can call you motherfucking asswipes if we want to. And we want to. We love our free speech, except when we don't. Except when it's more than five people at once, or after 10 p.m., or amplified by a microphone, or megaphone, or near a building that contains men with suit pants, or women with pantsuits, or when it's on a sidewalk, or a roadway, or on a holiday, or near a tent. Wasn't there a Dr. Seuss book about this? You cannot have it in the dark. You cannot have it in Zuccotti Park. You cannot have it with some geese. You cannot have it according to the Oakland police. You cannot have your free speech, Uncle Sam. I am. So other than those times, enjoy your free speech. If you happen to break one of those rules, then we'll kindly present you with a gift. It's a tear gas canister, and it will be coming toward you at an impressive speed. Doesn't matter if you're one of the soldiers who fought overseas to ensure those rights. We'll still pummel you if you proceed. I have a deal to make with the ruling elite. If you want to crack down on freedom of speech when it's a message you disagree with, fine. But in return, we the people reserve the right to take away free speech when it's a message we disagree with. Like... Tyler Perry's House of Painful Comedy, or CNN's House of Brain Dead News, or MTV's Summer House of Walking STDs. We reserve the right to fire pepper spray at them, or to duct tape the mouths of the presidential candidates talking in circles about nonsense caked in affable hand gestures. Or ex-military military analysts who spent 20 years bombing other countries and now want to let the American people know that the answer to their problem is gasp to bomb other countries? Where are the peace analysts on CNN or NBC? Where are the guys who spent 20 years in the peace trenches, waging peace, bringing peace to areas of the world that had never seen it before, like the Pentagon? If you're going to hire blow things up experts to tell us to blow things up, then at least also hire peace experts to say that that idea fucking blows. But anyway, point is, our freedom of speech is apparently pretty scary to the people at the top. And you know when they find it scariest? When it's right. So keep fighting. Occupy everywhere. Hey, Jay, this is Max Colleen from the People's Republic of Davis, California. I've really been stirred by Occupy Oakland over the last week. I think it was last Tuesday there was a uh, shocking incident of police brutality when um, a 24-year-old Iraq War veteran, Scott Olson, was hit in the head with a tear gas canister and had his skull fractured. And then in less than a week's time, um, Oakland has successfully executed uh, this country's first general strike since the 1940s, which coincidentally was also in Oakland, California. Um, I really don't think that's any coincidence, of course. They have a rich radical history. As I speak to you, as I leave this message, 12.34 a.m. on November 3rd, the police are again violently cracking down on this peaceful protest. I'm calling in to 
to request that you specifically do an Occupy Oakland show. I know that Occupy Oakland is part of the Occupy Wall Street movement. The developments in Oakland are quickly escalating. We haven't seen a general strike in this country for some time, and the fact that they pulled it off in less than a week, they shut down this nation's fifth biggest port with less than a week of organizing is incredible. I was born in 1988. I'm 22 years old. I'm about to be 23. I've never seen anything like this in this country. The whole situation at once makes me feel uh, disgusted with the brutality, but um, really invigorated with the spirit that I've never seen before in my life. You know, I've only read about a general strike, you know. Anyway, keep up the good work. Um, I look forward to hearing whatever show you put out. Thanks again. Take care, Jay. Solidarity forever. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. This is Daniel Westcott in Chicago, Illinois. I've got two things that I wanted to bring up. First off, as forward-thinking people, we need to use the momentum that all of the Occupy people have built up and carry it through into the next year's election cycle. This winter will definitely take some of the motivation out of the Occupy group because coal is cold. But the problems that have been highlighted aren't seasonal. Rather than to allow the narrative to slip away into the co-opting hands of the media and the conservative left, we need to plan and organize a mass action. I'm like a lot of other people. I'm totally on board with the protests, but I can't always get away from work and school in order to be a physical person down there. A lot of people can't be there in a physical sense because it's a long-term commitment. So we do what we can through our social networks and monetary support. Right? Don't you? But what if we took this opportunity to really connect by planning a single event in the spring, either a march in March or just mobilize around the G8 summit here in Chicago in May? I'm not personally able to organize anything, but would totally go if it could be a temporary commitment. A massive warm bodies kind of statement. Display what 99% of people actually looks like. I'll be listening for a response and will help to promote if I can. The other thing I wanted to mention was AmericansElect.org. Uh, I haven't heard much of this, about this anywhere, but there's, you know, almost two million signatures on their ballot petitions, and they're really a pretty sweet idea of trying to get a candidate on the ballot in all 50 states without actually having to subscribe to either party's ideology. So check out AmericansElect.org. Thanks, guys. Keep it up, Jay. Hey, this is Dee from Chicago calling in the wake of the Oakland riots. Now, I know that the violence that was done in Oakland is not representative of the entire Occupy movement, but what attracted me to the Occupy movement in the beginning was the nonviolence. But over the past month, even before the Oakland riots, even before the police uh, invaded the Oakland, uh, the Occupy Oakland territory, I noticed that the movement really isn't practicing nonviolence. I wanted to read Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Six Basic Elements of Nonviolence that, that he wrote sometime in the, in the late 50s. First, nonviolence is resistance to evil and oppression. It is a human way to fight. Second, it does not seek to defeat or humiliate the, depo- the opponent, but to win his or her friendship and understanding. Third, the nonviolent method is an attack on the forces of evil rather than against the persons doing the evil. 
It seeks to defeat the evil and not the persons doing the evil and injustice. Fourth, it is the willingness to accept suffering without retaliation. I think that's an incredibly important one, especially to this movement and the footage that I've been seeing and the, basically the experiences I've had in the own Occupy Chicago uh, protests that I've been going to. But uh, to continue, fifth, a nonviolent resistor avoids both external physical and internal spiritual violence, not only refuses to shoot, but also to hate an opponent. The ethic of real love is at the center of nonviolence. Sixth, the believer in nonviolence has a deep faith in the future and the forces in the universe are seen to be on the side of justice. I believe that, that those are important elements to incorporate into the Occupy movement and we really need nonviolence training at all of these movements to really get these protests bigger, to get more people involved with it, to really win the hearts and minds of the people in not only America but other countries across the world. I mean, we can really make this our time, our movement. It's not only the power of one, it's the power of the 99%. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Uh, so the thing I want to talk about today is is a little bit of behind-the-scenes stuff, but it's it's re- really only because it's indicative of kind of a broader, uh, you know, a broader point. So I was just looking at the download statistics for the show, which I, honestly I really don't do all that often. Um, you, you know, I, I check it out. The average download uh, for one episode is generally this, you know, very close to the same as uh, as all the others. And, and I really don't spend any time or energy trying to figure out, like, you know, do, do shows get downloaded more if they're posted on a certain day or at a certain time or if they're on a certain subject or whatever? You know, I just, you know, I, like other podcasters do that. I've, I've heard them talk about it and I'm always astonished because, because they have that sort of energy and I'm sure it serves them well, but I just, I don't, I don't do that. But today I was, I was looking and it was really, really easy to see at a glance that there were a few episodes that, that had really spiked, which essentially never happens. Um, you know, most, uh, basically people are subscribed to the show and they download every episode whether they listen to it or not. So I can't really tell, you know, I, I wouldn't presume to be able to tell, uh, which episodes people are listening to and which ones they aren't because they probably are, are subscribed to the show and they probably downloaded it even if they didn't actually hear it. Uh, but I saw a few that had spiked and I was like, oh, like, what are those? And it turns out they were the economic class war episodes and then specifically, the uh, Occupy Wall Street episodes. And so what this tells me is that, you know, because because I think that most people are subscribed to the show and most people download every episode automatically, you know, regardless, that for an episode to spike like that, it means that the episodes are being shared to, you know, with people who wouldn't wouldn't normally go out and, and find the show on their own or they wouldn't normally be subscribed. Uh, and, and I'm totally guessing but assuming I'm right, then that's that's what's ha- what's happening and why those episodes are being uh, downloaded more times. 
I think I think that is indicative of something that that we're all kind of instinctually aware of that this whole movement has really tapped into something that people are profoundly interested in and uh, and excited about. And, and so I continue, you know, at like every bit of news I get from Occupy Wall Street, I continue to get more and more excited. Like this, this isn't ending. You know, people are <laughs> remaining engaged, and and that is what it takes. I mean, you just have to remain engaged until we win. You know, there's the old quote, always uh, I think attributed to Gandhi, and it may not necessarily have been from him. But uh, you know, it goes first they ignore you, then they make fun of you, then they fight you, then you win. And uh, I mean, you can kind of see <laughs> that we've been going through all of those stages already with Occupy Wall Street, and uh, and you know, so it's nothing but encouraging to know that we're we're on the path, and people are excited, and and people continue to be interested and engaged, and and. Are sharing this news and consuming this news and uh, and staying plugged in. So let's keep it going. Now that's all I had. I just want to thank a couple of members before I go. Uh, Rich R signed up for a leftist monthly membership back on May fourth, and Edgar P signed up for a leftist yearly membership on August eleventh. So huge thanks to Rich and Edgar and all the members and donors who help keep the show going. I couldn't do it without you guys. Everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading individual clips. Uh, every clip that's used in the show is is linked individually in the show notes, and you can share those through your social networks or uh, via email or whatever you want uh, very easily, so check that out. You can stay tuned into the show directly by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Oh, oh, oh.